0: Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. I want to begin with some, some questions for you to ponder this morning. What is Jesus looking for from the people who follow him? What makes a good follower of Jesus? What makes a good church of followers of Jesus? If you're new today, then you need to know that these are the questions that we've been exploring as a community since the turn of the year at Church Central South. We have wanted to strip everything back and explore afresh what it means to respond to the simple invitation that Jesus extends to everyone in this room today, come follow me. And most recently, we've been exploring that by walking slowly through the book of Revelation. That's the last book in the Bible, and it's pretty wacky. And in the last month or so, we found ourselves in chapters 2 and 3, exploring the so-called Letters to the churches. These are, if you don't know, seven messages from the risen Jesus to seven real life churches in real cities in first century Turkey. And as you'll notice when I read today's passage in a moment, because it's written to people a long time ago and a long way away and in a different culture, not Everything that we read in these letters is immediately makes loads of sense to our Western ears. It takes a little bit of patience and a little bit of work to handle a text from a different time and a different place. So we've had to work quite hard the last few weeks, if you've been around, you might know that, to kind of really grapple with what it's saying. But even though there's challenge in these letters, really at their heart, the letters to the churches do one beautiful thing simple profound thing they hand effectively the microphone to Jesus himself and they let him explain in his own words what he's looking for from those who profess to follow him And so today, on a Baptism Sunday, this passage is going to be really relevant. It's going to be relevant for you, Joy, as you declare your intention to follow Jesus with your life. And your listening face is on point. Again, well done. Very good. (laughs) It's going to be relevant to the friends and family of joy as well. Perhaps even if there's some people here who aren't as used to the church thing, I think it's going to really help you because if you don't know anything about what it means to follow Jesus, then today is only going to be a religious ceremony in a paddling pool for you to spectate. But if you begin to at least see something of what this means at its heart, then you can begin to connect with what this really means for joy on that deeper level. And it's definitely going to be relevant for the wider Church Central South family here. Because can I ask us to never grow tired or bored of effectively giving the microphone to Jesus and humbly asking him, what is it that you require of us, Jesus? So let's read the letter to the church in the city of Philadelphia, one of the ones on the right there. Uh, And then I'll walk us back through it and try and help us learn about three uh, big questions. The questions are this, who is Jesus in this passage? What does he ask of his followers? And lastly, near the end, why keep following him when it's so tough to do that? Let me read it. Revelation chapter 3, starting from verse 7. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me look i will force those who belong to satan's synagogue and just to say we will address that language near the end of the talk i promise those liars who say they are jews but are not to come and bow down at your feet they will acknowledge that you are the ones i love because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Let us now, with our ears and with the Spirit's help, seek to understand some of this. Firstly, who is Jesus in this passage? There is this slightly cryptic intro to Jesus, isn't there? This little bio of him in verses 7 and 8. It says, the one who has the key of David... What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I've opened a door for you that no one can close. Now, there are, I think, two layers at which we can engage with these uh, verses. The first is just really simple. The immediate sense that everyone in here got when we read those verses, that it's something to do with the fact that Jesus can kind of go where he wants, right? He's got authority, and he's got access to whatever doors he wants. He's got a massive key, whatever that is, and he can open doors and shut doors, and if he wants to do it, he's doing it, and you can't stop him. That's kind of the simple kind of layer of what it means. But if you permit me one and a half minutes of seemingly geeky Bible stuff, I think we'll see that there's an even deeper layer here which shows us that Jesus has authority to give us access to God's family. See, this exact phrasing is pretty much taken word for word from an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 22, verse 22, if you want to look at it in your own time. And in this passage, a question has arisen in the aftermath of the death of King David. King David was a king, and on the whole, it seems he was a pretty good king, and now he's gone, and things have started to slip and slide. And so the question in the air is, who's going to bring us back to the way things were when David was on the throne? Who's going to open the doors to David's palace again? Who's going to be trusted to restore King David's royal legacy and open up the gates to the royal kingdom once again? And there's a guy called Eliakim, best name. And he gets entrusted with this role in Isaiah 22, verse 22. He's given the key of David so that he can open up the gates to the royal home and the royal kingdom once more. And now that imagery is taken and given to Jesus to talk about another royal home, another royal kingdom, another royal family, another royal line, that of God himself. And so these verses aren't saying, trust in Jesus and he'll open all the doors in your career and that'll be really great, though that might be true. It's saying something much more beautiful than that. It's saying Jesus is the one who opens the door to God's royal family and gets you in. Now that's really important on a morning like this because you'd be forgiven for leaving today thinking that how you become part of God's family is you get baptised in a paddling pool. But baptism doesn't get you in to God's family. Baptism is an outward expression of something that's already happened on the inside. And while we're listing things that don't get you into God's family, being moral doesn't get you into God's family. Being knowledgeable doesn't get you into God's family. Being good doesn't get you into God's family. Living a sort of good life doesn't get you into God's family. Living a life that's at least better than most of the people I know doesn't get you into God's family. Jesus gets you into God's family. I love the story that I've heard told about the thief on the cross who died next to Jesus. He's a criminal. And in this imagined conversation, this criminal next to Jesus gets to heaven. And everyone is outraged that this criminal is there in heaven. They're going, seriously, this guy? Are you joking? How does he get in? And so they go up to him and they form a queue and they start peppering him with questions. And they say, hey, you. Did you go to church every week or at least two out of four? And were you on a serving team? And he goes, What's a church? And they say, Well, hang on, can you explain the doctrine of the Trinity? And he goes, What's a doctrine? And what's the Trinity? And they say, Did you read your Bible? And did you memorize it? And he says, I'm really sorry. What's a Bible? And they say, have you got a list of good deeds that you can show us? And he says, I've got like loads of stuff I nicked, but, but no good deeds. And eventually they stop and they just ask him one final question. They say, how did you get in? And he says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That is Christianity. Jesus gets us in and if he opens the door then no one can close it and then secondly what does Jesus ask of his followers verse 8 is a beautiful summary of this that I hope will be my life verse and I hope if if we still have headstones when I die or you know written on my corner of the metaverse I want this (laughs) bible verse okay And I pray this over you, Joy, and I pray this over all of us. Yet you have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Three things that Jesus is looking for in his followers. First, weakness. It says you have little strength. Do you know that all the blessings and the promises of the Christian life Only come to be yours if you dare to own Jesus' assessment of them, and of me, and of us, and of you, that you are weak. We aren't self-sufficient. We aren't strong. We have inconsistencies. We fall short. We have mess. And here's the thing. Often we fear that to admit that would mean that God's going to keep us at a distance. But with Christianity, it's the opposite. If we refuse to admit that, then it's us who are keeping God at a distance. Because Jesus said this in Luke's Gospel. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come... To call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And baptism is full of this admission of weakness. The water shows us that it is not a prize for the squeaky clean. Rather, it is for all who know and dare to confess that they need cleansing. And the drenching of the water shows us, it represents our great need for the drenching, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who comes to bring us strength and power to live for God because we know that in and of ourselves we have no strength or power to live for God. Jesus is looking for us to admit our weakness. And then secondly, he's looking for obedience. He says, you have little strength yet you obeyed my word. How do followers of Jesus respond to the words of Jesus? Obedience. But we live in a culture that is training us to respond to his words and all content very differently because we live in a saturated culture where there's so much content We have been trained just as a survival mechanism to ignore most content. If you try to take really diligently and seriously all of the information in the world, you won't have enough time to brush your teeth and have your breakfast because there's so much of it. And so we've learned that the normal response to content is to scroll past it and ignore it. And then because we live in an entertainment culture, our response to content is often to smile and go... (laughs) A cat with a tuba, Amazing. It's so funny. And then to scroll. And because we live in a consumeristic culture, we've been trained to respond to content by feeling a little sad about our life and then buying something to make us feel a little happier about our life. Either directly because we've watched an advert or indirectly because we watched a box set that sort of lied to us that our life would be much happier if we bought those sunglasses or whatever it is and because we live in an outrage culture we've been trained to respond to content with short-term extreme emotions that then don't affect our life and so we go i love this great talk rich but then it doesn't do anything or how dare he say that do you hear what he said outrageous and then our life isn't changed Why is this relevant? If you're a follower of Jesus in a saturated entertainment consumeristic outrage culture, unless you are deliberately swimming upstream, then we are going to treat Jesus like any other content creator. And we're going to scroll on past... We're going to smile because it was nice. We're going to buy into it if it makes our life feel 5% happier in the short term. Or we're going to respond with short-term emotional reactions like, I love this, or I hate this, and then move on. But none of those are how followers of Jesus respond to his words. Christians respond to the words of Jesus with obedience. You're wondering why Joy would want to go into a paddling pool In March. You know why? Jesus said, believe and be baptised. So we obey. Thirdly, he's looking for loyalty. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Being a Christian is about a deep, relational heart commitment to Jesus Christ where we give him our primary allegiance and loyalty where just as joy will go all in to the water we say we are all in with Jesus even though there are going to be things that make it hard to stay true to him like there are in every time and every culture If being a Christian means anything, it must mean that we don't deny him or his ways, even when it's tough. Because it is going to be tough following Jesus. Joy up. It's a sobering note on your baptism morning, but you already know this. Following Jesus is tough. And it'd be a disservice to you to lie to you and say it'll all be smiles from here on in. See, it was tough for the church in Philadelphia. There were two particular tough things for them. I said we'd return to this language. First, this language of Satan's synagogue. There was this, a faction of the wider Jewish community in the city that were opposing the Christians and threatening the Christians and even killing the Christians for being Christians. And so just want to pause and acknowledge and take a moment, always happy to take a moment to teach this, that this sort of verse in the Bible has been used by far-right governments and sections of the church even to justify a broad racist vile anti-Semitism to all people who are ethnically Jewish. Now that's not only evil but that is really dishonest with the text because Jesus who's speaking these words or as his Hebrew name would be Yeshua is an ethnic Jew descended from David, Mary's son, he was and remains to this day, as he sits alive in glory, ethnically Jewish. And so to paint Jesus as anti the Jewish people as a whole would be laughable if it wasn't so murderously dangerous. So I just want to teach into that. But the reality is that from a faction of the Jewish community in that city, there was opposition to the church. And so being a Christian was hard for them. And then in verse 10, there's this mysterious, generic, great time of testing, which, uh, to go Bible geek again, some would say is a great tribulation at the end of time. Others would say was some trouble that came in the first century in the Roman world. Either way, I'm a simple guy. And so to me, what this shows is that Jesus knows that there will be times that test us if we follow him. He knows there are times that stretch us and push us to our limit where it's hard to follow him. And so as we come into land, why do it? Why keep following him? Why follow him even when it's so tough? And this passage closes out with three Things that are coming soon for all who persevere and overcome and stay loyal and stay true and see it through and hold their nerve. Firstly, strength is coming. Verse 12 says, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. I'm a simple guy. What's a pillar? I don't really know, but it's strong and it can be built on, and it can bear weight and stand tall. Do you remember the description of these Christians in this passage already? You have little strength. They're a little weak community. They're little weak Christians. They're little weak Christians like me. But if they just hold on, if they just see it through, they will know who they were born to be, because God will make them into pillars in his house. And this happens, I think, in part in this life. I feel something of the chapter one beginnings of this in my own life. That God has taken me in my weakness and outrageous fragility and wobbliness. And he's beginning slowly to sow the seeds in me that can make me, bit by bit, become someone who can even bring a bit of strength and solidity to others near me. I'm not a pillar. I'm I'm not a, a brick. I'm a I'm I'm becoming a twig. But one day I'll be a pillar if I hold my nerve. And so will you, and so will all who follow Jesus. And tragically I've seen people who could have been pillars and could have been oaks of righteousness walk away too soon because it got hard horse it's hard he was crucified but don't walk away too soon what a waste stay with Jesus and you've no idea what he can make of you in this life in part and in the next life for sure for all who overcome will be who we were born to be and then second honor honor is coming he says, I will write on them the name of my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Now, what's this about? I want to ask you, when do you put your name on something? My little daughter, Grace, who's in the kids' work right now, she writes her name on anything that's hers and that she's proud of and that she wants the world to know belong to her. That bottle, Mine. That cardigan, mine. That sweat-drenched, rancid unicorn cap that should be burned in an incinerator, mine. And so she writes her name on it. And in their city for following Jesus, these Christians were maligned and mocked and pitied and they had all sorts of labels thrown at them and all sorts of things said about them and all sorts of names thrown at them. And you know what? Maybe that'll happen to us as well. I think that's happening in part to me in my life. I think my cohort at school, as we follow each other through the basic lies and filters of social media, I don't think many of them look at my life now as I follow Christ and think, he's a pillar. (laughs) I think they pity me. I think they mock. But whatever shame we bear for Jesus... Coming is a day when we will have the honour of him writing his name on us. That rich pit, mine. Joy, mine. What greater honour could there be for us? Well, as I finish, there is actually one greater honour because Jesus himself is coming soon. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Why keep following Jesus? Because he's coming soon for us. And you say, well, he's not rich because this was written 2,000 years ago. and He hasn't come soon. There's a moment in uh, the Narnia books where the same accusation is thrown at Aslan. And Lucy says to him, you say you're coming soon. What does soon mean? And he says this annoying cryptic phrase. He says, with me, all times are soon. And she goes what (laughs) and then eventually he comes back and Jesus is coming soon with him all times are soon as sure as the morning follows the night he's coming soon And because of his death and his resurrection, we know that he is trustworthy. We know he is capable. He is coming soon. And so we persevere. Because one day we won't have to symbolise our closeness to Jesus by baptism. He'll be physically with us. And one day we won't have to cling on and believe that by the Holy Spirit he's with us, but it still feels a little bit distant. And we see, as the scriptures say, through a, a mirror dimly he's there, but is he? He's coming soon. We'll be with him forever, and that's why we persevere. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. That's a follower of Jesus. I want to pray that for all of us, perhaps particularly for you, Joy, and then we'll go and throw you into a paddling pool of freezing cold water.